Well, have you heard of the online encyclopedia called Newpedia? Probably not. It was launched in 2000 by two individuals, and the goal was simple. They were to contract the best and brightest doctors, historians, and professors from around the world to research and to write articles, which upon completion would be filtered through an extensive editing process and then uploaded on an online site. Now, due to the nature of this task, the project was extremely slow. It caused these two owners to actually shut down Newpedia after only three years and only 24 articles posted. Now, the following year, in 2001, these same two individuals launched a second vehicle for the purpose of creating a feeder system for Newpedia. This second venture implemented a different strategy, though. Instead of just having two people in charge of everything, what they did is they had average, ordinary men and women who were encouraged to submit articles to this editorial staff. So for example, if you were an avid golfer, you could write an article about golf and you could submit it in there and they would look at it, review it, and then post it. Now, by the end of its first year, volunteers had submitted over 20,000 Wicca articles for consideration. And now, almost 15 years later, Wikipedia is the largest encyclopedia on the World Wide Web, boasting over 17 million articles. Now, how did they do that? What what was the difference? Well, for Wikipedia, they had ordinary individuals who were entrusted for the researching and the submitting of articles pertaining to topics that they were actually passionate about. And when you stop and think about like the success of Wikipedia versus Newpedia, it all had to do with their strategy. That Newpedia, they weren't comfortable with empowering a mass group of people to do the work, but Wikipedia was, and it was the difference in their success. And I was thinking about that. I was like, man, the church has a lot to learn about Wikipedia and how to empower uh, volunteers to do uh, the work. It's interesting because as Wikipedia has been talking more about their success and why it is that they are successful, they discovered a multiplication effect that as they noticed that ordinary average people were empowered to write about things that they were passionate about and they were watching their work get posted, their friends heard about it and their family heard about it and their coworkers heard about it. And so it caused this multiplication to, uh, to start to develop of more and more people getting on board with this mission. And I want you to know this morning that that is exactly the, the vision for Jesus's ministry here on earth. That when you stop and you think about how Jesus lived his life 2000 years ago, you'll notice that he didn't do all of the work of ministry. I mean, he invested in a group of disciples, 12 disciples, and he discipled them in such a way that those 12 would then go and disciple other people who then would disciple other people as well. It was this multiplication effect that has literally changed the world. Now, admittedly, I'm not the greatest at mathematics, but that philosophy of ministry is way more effective than simply uh, addition. And that is the vision for what we want when we talk about uh, multiply, that it's about each of us, all of us, the people of God engaging in the great commission to multiply what God has done in us in other people through uh, the gospel. So when you think about multiply and, and what that means at College Park Fishers, I want you to think about it in these three ways. I want you to think about it as it relates to evangelism, 
discipleship and church planting. So when you think about multiplying with evangelism, you're basically taking the gospel of Jesus and multiplying it by God's grace into someone else causing salvation. When you think about discipleship, you're taking the spiritual maturity that God has produced in you and you're multiplying that in someone else. And you think about church planning, like the Castleton congregation gonna be launching the next couple of weeks. We're taking a group of people and we're multiplying them into a different location for the glory of God and the good of his people. Now, when you look at Matthew 28, Matthew 28, I think, provides a vision for a type of discipleship that lines up with more of Wikipedia than Newpedia. In fact, you should be confronted this morning of, of what kind of Christian are you today? Are you more of a Wikipedia Christian or are you more of a Newpedia Christian as it relates to your own personal discipleship? Is your discipleship, is it described more as multiplication or simply addition? In Matthew 28, we read the last words that, uh, that have been recorded here by Matthew. This is after the resurrection. This is before the ascension of Christ when he went back up uh, to heaven. And he's got really one last thing that he wants to tell his disciples. And it, and it has everything to do with the idea of multiplication. Four things that I want us to see in this, passage, in this passage as it relates to multiplication. I want us to see the source of multiplication. I want us to see the substance of multiplication. I want us to see the scope of multiplication. And then last, I want us to see the satisfaction of multiplication. So let's start with the first one, the source of multiplication in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now with this statement, Jesus declares uh, very clearly that he has all authority. He has all dominion. All power is his. The reason that he can declare this is because of what he has accomplished in his death and in his resurrection. That according to Colossians 2, Jesus has disarmed the rulers and the authorities within the spiritual satanic world that Jesus has accomplished everything that was necessary for him to sit down at the right hand of the Father, giving him full authority and full dominion. But even more so, that power that raised Jesus from the dead actually lives in us as believers through the Spirit of God. Romans 8, 11 says that if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So Jesus makes the statement, he's got all authority, he's got all power, but not only that, as we think about what it means to live out the Great Commission, through the Holy Spirit, we have been given this same power. Now, why is that important in understanding our strategy to multiply? Well, Jesus wants us to know that the source of multiplication is not wrapped up in our own ability. It's not wrapped up in our own gifts, our own experience, our own wisdom, but the source of multiplication is in Jesus who holds all authority and all power. That's really important to know because if you're like me, when you read the Great Commission, I more often than not, I skip over verse 18. Like I skip over the fact that Jesus has all authority and I wanna get right to the heart of the Great Commission 
Just tell me what to do, Jesus. Go and make disciples. Okay, I got it. And I skip over the reality that Jesus has all authority and all power in order to live out multiplication. And I think that's really important because I think one of the biggest barriers for us living out multiplication and living out discipleship wraps up in this idea of, I don't have what it takes. Like, I don't know how to do this. Like I, I've made too many mistakes in my life. Surely I can't, I can't multiply my life in other people. That's one of the biggest barriers is this failure to understand the power that lives inside of us through the spirit of God. I think verse 18 is here to declare that you can do far more than what you actually think or imagine as it relates to discipleship but it has nothing to do with your own gifts and wisdom and experience. And it has everything to do with the power of God that lives inside of you. And talking to to believers for for years about discipleship, it, it feels like more often than not, we underestimate our ability to engage in discipleship rather than overestimate. Like as I'm talking to people, I, I never really hear people talk about in, in an overestimation type of a way as it relates to discipleship. I, I usually hear this, this sense of drawback and fear because they don't know how or they don't, they, they don't have what it takes. And yet if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, be reminded that you have the spirit of God living within you. You have the living God and that, that God has a power for you that's almost impossible to comprehend. It's the same power that, that raised Jesus from the dead. So you've got this God who's living inside of you and he's a God who is a multiplying God. He's not a stagnant God. He's not a God who, who is complacent, but he is a God who desires that the gospel be multiplied to the ends of the earth. And not only that, but he ensures that that will happen in and through his followers by giving this power through the spirit of God. I love even 2 Timothy chapter 1, uh, verse 7, that talks about the fact that we have not been given a spirit of fear, but we've been given a spirit of power. And who can stop the Lord God Almighty? If God is for us, who can be against us? Like we have God living within us, unlimited resources and power and authority. What, what type of excuse are we making for not engaging in discipleship that, that compares with the glory and the power of God. So maybe the question is, well, how do you tap into that power? Like if you have the spirit of God in your life, like how do you actually experience it? Well, put very simply, I, I think it's participating in what Jesus says for us to do. I think it's actually caught up in actually living out verses 19 and 20. Because when you start going and making disciples, you'll notice that you're starting to live outside of your own strength and wisdom and resources, and you start to become very dependent on something beyond yourself. Like if you're not living verses 19 and 20 out, there's no need for verse 18. There's no need for the authority and the power of God in your life. You're, you're living a comfortable life. But when you're living out what Jesus has to say in this passage, it results in the necessity for a power and an authority beyond yourself. Or as Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, that his power is made perfect in weakness. It's not made perfect in your wisdom or your experience, but in your weakness. So I wonder if, if you're here today and, and 
you haven't been experiencing the authority or the power of Christ in your life, I, I wonder if it's because you're not living out verses 19 and 20. Like, do you want more of God's power and authority in your life? Then, then make disciples, engage and participate in this vision of multiplication that Jesus has for us. And so what does that look like? What, what, what does verses 19 and 20 actually have to say? Well, number two here, the second aspect has to do with the substance of multiplication, the content. What is multiplication and what does Jesus have to say? Verses 19 and 20, Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So here we really have the heart or the substance of the great commission that Jesus now explains what our lifelong assignment actually is. And the first thing that he says is go therefore and make disciples. Now that word therefore is there, I think to show us that because Jesus is who he says he is and because he has full authority, we are therefore commissioned to go and make disciples. And so the central command in this passage is, is to make disciples. But I love what Jesus does here. He doesn't just give us this command, but he shows us how to do it. He says, make disciples by going, by baptizing, and by teaching all that I've commanded you. Now let's take uh, each of those one at a time. When you think about baptism in the Great Commission, like I've always read that and I think, man, that is so random. Like why, why does Jesus throw in baptism here as it relates to making disciples? Well, baptism is the sacred act by publicly identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That it's this dynamic symbol of publicly declaring to the church and the people of God that you belong to Jesus and his family. And I think the way that this relates to discipleship is that there is an evangelistic element to multiplication, that our mission as the church isn't just to target believers, but as you think about going and making disciples, some of these individuals aren't disciples to begin with. They're not followers of Jesus to begin with. And so as you're trying to multiply what God has done in you in someone else, you might think to yourself, the first step is to introduce them to who Jesus actually is, to call them to faith and repentance in him so that they can then be saved. And so after they come to know Jesus in a saving way, the next step is for them to be baptized. That's the pattern that we see throughout the New Testament. In fact, in the New Testament, there, there was really no such thing as an unbaptized follower of Jesus. It was your next step as it relates to who Jesus is and what it means to follow after him. So remember, Jesus is giving us a vision of what multiplication looks like. And baptism is very important because you're identifying and belonging to a people of God. And yet not only that, but Jesus also says for us to teach others to observe everything that he has commanded. Now notice here that learning is not the goal here. That transformation is actually the goal that he wants us to teach people in such a way that others can observe everything that he has commanded. In fact, this word observe, very interesting word. It carries the notion of having the ability to apply what you know with what you see. 
So the idea here is that you're watching and you're seeing and you're living life and you're helping other people apply the words of Jesus to whatever life situation that they are in. And so when you think about discipleship, don't think just a transfer of knowledge. It's not just, okay, I've got so much knowledge and experience here. I just wanna dump this on here so they can download it. But discipleship is more about life on life action. It's more about applying the words of Christ to life and what they experience, to apply the words of Jesus to singleness or to parenting or uh, to, to being a good spouse or to, uh, to, to uh, having a flourishing work life or a suffering or being a good neighbor. It's applying Jesus and his words to everyday life. And so we're to go and to make disciples. So what does it mean to make disciples. Let me give you a very simple uh, definition of discipleship. A discipleship essentially means following Jesus together with someone else. Okay, now that definition is, is intentionally uh, simple. I'm trying to like remove like the complexity of discipleship that we tend to want to attach to it. Because something that we do in the Christian life is if we overcomplicate something, then that almost gives us permission not to engage. Like if I don't fully understand or map out how it is I'm supposed to live something out in the Christian life, that creates kind of uh, this, this paralyzing that takes place so that we don't take steps and actually live it out. So let me remove that. Let me remove the fog and say that discipleship is following Jesus and helping someone else follow Jesus with you. Or you can think about it this way. You've got relationship plus time plus Jesus equals multiplication. In other words, like the more time that you spend with somebody in relationship, following Jesus, helping someone else follow Jesus with you, the more spiritual maturity will be multiplied in their life. And we believe that the best vehicle for discipleship is relationships. I love the, the relational emphasis that Paul um, puts on discipleship and multiplication as he exhorts young Timothy in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. He says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Do you see that? The, the relational emphasis, the multiplication effects. Like you've got, you've got Paul who invests in Timothy, who is called to invest in faithful men, who then will be able to invest in others. That's a fourth generation model of discipleship. Like that is what we are after when we talk about multiplication. Like this is raising the ante a little bit of not just discipling somebody, not just maturing somebody, but discipling them in such a way that they can then disciple other people. It's not strictly addition, but it is multiplication. And the call to discipleship, it starts with people in our spheres of influence. It starts with our family and our small groups and people we do Bible studies with and serve with. It starts with people in our neighborhoods and our workplaces. Like that's where it begins as we help people mature in Christ who can then help other people mature in Christ who then can help other people mature in Christ. It's this multiplication effect. And in order for that to happen, like especially in Hamilton County, like we need a purposeful margin in our life to go deep with people. Like in order to really live this out, like 
maybe the next step for some of us is to like cut some things out of our schedules so that we can then actually participate in multiplication. That we kind of need to learn how to say no to some things in life and not be so busy that we're not going deep with people, helping them follow Jesus, who then can help other people follow Jesus. But the call to multiplication lies in understanding what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to help other people do the same. That Jesus wants us to disciple people by teaching them to observe all that he has commanded. That this is centered upon Jesus. And look, it's a good reminder for us because intentionally or unintentionally, we all put something at the center of our discipleship. Like mom and dad, as you're investing in your kids or as you're investing in each other as spouses or friends or in a small group, we all put something at the focus or the center of our discipleship. And sometimes we put rules or guidelines or some type of program, something other than Jesus, which unfortunately results in kind of a cold and rigid discipleship feel. Like if the center is about following rules or performance-based or legalism, the result will have this rigid discipleship feel. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 put the center of me and following after me, that the center must be Jesus. And so as you're discipling people, how often are you talking about Jesus with the person that you're discipling? How often are you talking about what it means to follow Jesus and apply the things that he says with a gospel-centered motivation? Not a motivation to earn God's approval and love, but a motivation out of God's love for you that he demonstrated in Christ Jesus. So look, at College Park Fishers, we want the center to be about Jesus. We wanna follow Jesus. We wanna love Jesus. We wanna look more and more like Jesus. And we believe that if each of us continue to take more and more steps towards multiplying what Jesus has done in our life, in other people, we will create a culture of discipleship here at this church where we take responsibility and ownership of taking what God has done in us and multiplying that in other people. But it starts with understanding what it means to follow Jesus. I remember I was listening to uh, a a phenomenal sermon uh, by Francis Chan about discipleship a few years ago. And and he was talking about discipleship and and he used this really helpful illustration about uh, about the game Simon Says. And he's like, in Francis Chan ways, he's hilarious, but he's like, you know, we all know the rules of Simon Says. Like if Simon Says, touch your head, we touch our head. If Simon Says, rub your belly, we rub our belly. He's like, yeah, we, we understand that. But when it comes to what God has to say, specifically about the Great Commission, we change the rules of the game. That God says, go make disciples, and we respond with, okay, God, I'll go memorize that. Or I'll go, I'll go learn about what that, what, what that means for my life. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go and unpack that. I'm not gonna actually do it, but I'm gonna go research it. And Francis Chan even took it a step further, and he talked about his daughter. And he said, it's, it's, like, it's like when I tell my daughter, hey, go clean your room. And she goes, okay, I'll go clean my room. And so she goes upstairs and she comes back down and he's like, did you clean your room? And, and she's like, well, no, but, but I memorized what you had to say. I, I, I memorized, I, I can recite it back to you if you want. You know, I can actually say it in the Greek for you. And, and I was listening to that and I was like, man, like that, that is so true. Like we just, we changed the rules of what it means to follow Jesus with the great commission by not always doing and making disciples 
But man, we can recite this to each other really well. Like we know the meaning of this. Some of us actually know what this means in the Greek. And I'm thinking to myself, why is that the case? And I'm thinking, why is that the case for my own life? And I think it's because there, there is this reality in, in our lives in which our Bible knowledge is so far out in advance of what we actually apply and to put into practice. Like our obedience is, is further behind our knowledge of scripture. And that creates kind of this, this hole in our Christian life where we know a lot, we can recite scripture a lot, and that helps our conscience kind of chill out for a moment, but we don't always live it out in obedience. Or as Dave Browning put in his book, Deliberate Simplicity, he says that we are convinced that the gap holding back most believers is not the gap between what they know and what they don't know, but it's the gap between what they know and what they're living, that many Christians are educated beyond their obedience. In other words, what we actually know and actually putting it into practice, there is a large gap. And our knee-jerk reaction, when we feel that and we sense that, and we all have gaps, I have gaps in my life, and things that we know to be true and yet we're not living out, what we tend to do is we, we make it complex and, and we make it so foggy. So we say to ourselves, well, this isn't clearly mapped out. So I don't, I don't know what this looks like. So I'm gonna have other people do it. And it leaves us off the hook from actually participating in it. And yet Jesus's words here are very clear, go and make disciples. It doesn't get any more clear than that. I remember in my, in my, my life, the first time that I, uh, discipled somebody, I was in high school. And I was a junior in high school and I was starting to get pretty serious about my relationship with Jesus. And my youth pastor was discipling me. And he took me out to breakfast every Tuesday morning and just taught me what it means to follow Jesus, how to apply the words of Jesus to uh, the many idols in my life, like basketball and girls and, and approval of other people. And he just taught me, this is, this is what it means to follow Jesus. And I remember one morning he said, Chris, I want you to do what we are doing and I want you to do it with another student. And I like dropped my fork and I'm like, wait, what? You want me to actually disciple somebody? I'm not ready. I don't, I don't know about this. And he said, no, no, you, you can do this. And I'm like, okay, um, where do I start? And he said, well, do you know any freshmen or sophomores? And I said, yeah, I do. Of course I do. He said, okay, well, pick one and invite him out for breakfast or coffee. And I'm like, okay, like, what do, what do I say? And he's like, well, just go up to him and say, hey, do you want to study the Bible together and, and figure out what it means to follow Jesus in, in high school? And I'm like, okay, I think I can do that. And then what? And, and he goes, you'll figure it out. <laughs> and I'll never, like, I'll never forget that. Like, you'll figure it out. Like, that is, I mean, I know that's a lot of our parenting strategies. Like, we'll just kind of figure it out. But that is so true in discipleship. Like, You'll just figure it out through the spirit of God and the authority and power of God in your life and through the authoritative word of God, you will figure it out. And I remember discipling that, that sophomore and to be honest with you, we had some messy meetings. Like we had some meetings and, and some passages of scripture. I had no idea what they meant. And it was kind of sloppy. I remember absolutely butchering that, uh, that lukewarm passage in, in Revelation and just interpreting it incorrectly. But one of the things that stood out to me and this individual is that Jesus is the point. Like Jesus is the center of discipleship. It's not based on how much I know. 
It's not based on how good of a Christian I am, but it's based on our Savior, Jesus Christ, and following him together. I remember hearing from him when I went off to college, when I went off to Cedarville freshman year, and we were talking on the phone, I was asking how he was doing, and he goes, Chris, you won't believe it, but I'm discipling a freshman this year. And I said to myself, man, like that is the win. Like that is the goal. The goal is not just to, to help one person mature and that's it, but the goal is multiplication. The goal is having disciples somebody who then disciples other people, who then disciples other people. I wanna ask you this morning, does, does that describe your discipleship relationship? That the person that you're investing into, are you discipling them in such a way that they are able to go and make other disciples? That they're able to go and, and pour into others? See, the question is no longer, who are you discipling? Are you discipling anybody? No, no, the, the real question is, are you discipling in such a way that that person can then go multiply themselves in other people. You know, in the New Testament, you're really not gonna find a group of Christians who are not engaged in multiplication in discipleship. And what happens is that that grows and that continues to spur on other people to participate in what it means to multiply. So that's the substance of multiplication. Go and make disciples. Let's look at the third aspect of multiplication the scope, the scope, or how far reaching is this assignment? Now, Jesus says in verse 19, he says, go therefore and make disciples of what? Of all nations. Now, Jesus here makes it clear that the scope of this assignment is worldwide. Now, Jesus is telling his, his followers to go and make disciples who then make more disciples, so if you're hearing this, maybe for the first time in uh, you're one of these disciples, you're probably asking the question, okay, where do we go make disciples? Like, who do I go to first? And in the first century, some probably would have thought that Jesus was referring to just the Jews. Go to the nation of Israel and make disciples because they're God's chosen people. And yet Jesus says, no, 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 go to all nations. That the scope is actually worldwide. And this indeed fulfills the promise of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. If you remember that promise in Genesis chapter 12, he was promised that all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. That's a big promise. That's a huge promise. And so you think to yourself, well, what was the strategy to accomplishing that in the Old Testament? Well, the strategy or the evangelistic strategy was a come and see mentality that God chose the people, uh, the, the, the nation of Israel, the weakest and the least likely nation. He chose them, saves them, and says, I need you to be holy as I am holy. I'm gonna give you the law. I'm gonna ask you not to intermingle these other nations. I need you to be set apart because you represent me to the other nations. And so when other nations come and see you, they see something different and it pulls them into following me. See, it's this come and see mentality. And yet Jesus enters the scene here in Matthew 28 and he changes the strategy a little bit. It's not just come and see, but it's also a go and tell. That the people of God is not just one nation, but the people of God is now the church. It's Jew and Gentile. It's all who, who bend the knee and follow Jesus Christ and confess him as Lord. And so we're not just called to be holy and different and set apart so people can come and see and hear the gospel on Sunday morning, 
but our strategy is also a go and tell. It's a Monday through Saturday where we go to the people in Indianapolis and to the ends of the earth and talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like this is why our vision for Multiply involves both local and global. That at our church, we, we love this area. We love Indianapolis. We want to invest here with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We wanna plant more churches so the gospel can spread. But also we take this seriously to go to all the nations. That's why in, in a couple of weeks, we'll have reach. And reach is a time where we as a church just focus on what God is doing around the world. It's the last two weekends in October. And I personally just love reach because it's a reminder for me that God's heart is for the nations. And for me, I need that reminder. Like I get so zoned into to Fishers and Noblesville and even just College Park Fishers Church. And I need to be reminded of this great commission. I need to be reminded of the scope that God's heart is for the nations. And he's calling each and every one of us to participate in that. So I just want to encourage you to maybe begin now, like just praying and asking the Lord to, to maybe do something in your heart and your life, overreach, that maybe God just puts a, a passion and a vision into your heart where you need to go, where you need to go cross-culturally and, and engage in missions or go on, on a mission trip or a vision trip and, and see what God is doing around the world. But this scope is absolutely massive. It's bigger than just Indianapolis. I think uh, an application of this, and, and we saw this a couple weeks ago in Ephesians chapter two, but the Great Commission is one of many reasons why racism in particular is not only wrong, but it's actually sinful. The elevating of one race over another is nowhere near the Great Commission. It's nowhere near the heart of God and what God has to say in his word, that Jesus' heart is for the nations to be saved. And, and what we're seeing in and around our country is a group of people who are elevating one race above another. They're declaring that one race is more superior than another. And so for us as followers of Jesus, our reaction to that is not just to sit back and observe that, but as followers of Jesus, we call that as sin. We condemn that and say racism is wrong. Racism is actually anti-gospel. It's anti to what God's word has to say and what God's design is for mankind. And look, I just wanna be honest with us. We're really good at calling out sin as it relates to abortion, aren't we? We're good at that as evangelicals. We're good at calling out sin as it relates to human trafficking. But look, as it relates to racism in 2017, I think we can step up our game a little bit. I think for some of us, we might think to ourselves, Chris, it's so obvious it's a sin. Like we, we know racism is sin. Why, why do we need to talk about this? And I just wanna share with you that we have brothers and sisters, even in our church and around the country, who are kind of unsure of where the church actually stands because we're too silent. So look, we call a sin a sin and we say, no, no, we condemn that. That is against what God has to say in his word. And not only that, but we extend ourselves and we build relationships with people who don't look exactly like us. See, one of the challenging things about the reality of the scope of multiplication is how can we go to the ends of the earth if we can't go to people in our neighborhoods who don't look exactly like us? Like, how can we participate in this when we can't go simply across the street? We'll go across the ocean, 
but can we go across the street who, who, who may have a different ethnicity than what we have and actually extend ourselves in relationship and live out the scope of multiplication even here in Indianapolis and Hamilton County? So look, we as a church, we need to lead the way with this and show that the church is multi-ethnic, that what we're gonna see and experience in heaven is a multi-ethnic church. So look, as a pastor, I don't want us to be surprised when we get to, to heaven and we see people of every tongue and nation bowing a knee to Jesus Christ. So we have a responsibility uh, with this to live it out. Number four here, the last aspect as it relates to multiplication is the satisfaction of multiplication that we see and even experience in this last verse. That Jesus, upon right before he ascends back up to heaven, he says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This could be translated as all of the days. If you want that fourth all statement, it's all of the days that Jesus will be with us. Man, multiplying is a daunting task, isn't it? I mean, if you're engaged in discipleship or evangelism, like you know firsthand how messy, how inconvenient, how hard, how stretching that this actually is. And look, we can, we can all come up with, with very valid reasons why we shouldn't participate in the Great Commission. Like we all have like fears, sense of inadequacy, we've got insecurities, we've got you know, levels of weaknesses or sin in our life. But man, I love what Jesus does in this passage. Like Jesus, Jesus knows exactly what he's doing here. He knows exactly who he's talking to. Like he's talking to a group of people that according to verse 17, we're still wrestling with doubt. This is post-resurrection and they're still wrestling with their fears and with their insecurities. Jesus even knows what type of emotion they're gonna be filled with as they watch Jesus physically leave them and go up in the ascension. Jesus knows all of that. Jesus knows how big of an assignment this is to go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus knows that. So how does he respond to that? Well, he not only says that all authority is mine, all power is mine. There's nothing that I lack that you need in order to live that out. He not only says that, but he promises his own presence for us to the end of the age. Isn't that amazing? And we get the promise, not only his power, but his presence in our lives. That Jesus is saying, look, as you go, as you make disciples, you have my power and you have my presence in your life. So one thing that we learn from this passage is, man, do you want more of God in your life? Do you want more of his power and his presence in your life? Then maybe you need to pray more. Maybe you need to read the Bible more. Maybe you need to fellowship more. But I guarantee the thing that you need to do is to live out the Great Commission because as you go and make disciples, you have the power and the presence of God in your life. Like, I just, I just don't know if it's true that, that if you're sitting back and you're not engaged in the Great Commission, I don't know if you're going to experience the power and the presence of God in your life. You might but I know for sure if you do and when you do, you will experience the power and the presence of God in your life, multiplying what he has done in your life in those around you. And that brings satisfaction to our lives as we experience and we feel God using us for the glory of his name. So as we close today, I just wanna land on, on this question. We've been asking this question throughout the last couple of weeks 
as it relates to our mission, as it relates to belong, grow, and multiply. I just wanna ask you this morning, like what, what is your next step to better participate in the mission of our church? Like we've got a group of people here at our church that are, that are highly engaged. You, you live out the mission really well, but like we all have steps to take to better engage in the mission of our church. And if you're a mature follower of Jesus, chances are someone invested in you. Someone multiplied spiritual growth into your life, but I guarantee that person had to take a step. They had to overcome their fears. They had to overcome barriers in their life in order to invest in you. And we are called to do the same, that we have amazing opportunities all around us. And so how might you finish uh, this sentence today as, as a way to, to help you identify what your next step is, that you would engage in multiplication more if. How would you personally finish that sentence? And this morning, maybe your next step today is, is to identify what that barrier is in your life. Maybe understand how you can push through that barrier. Maybe that's your next step today. Maybe your next step is, is maybe something that the Lord has spoken to you about over the last couple of weeks. Maybe uh, during the Sermon of Belong, you, you felt this desire that, yeah, I need, to, I need to take that next step and become a member here. Or I need, to, I need to join a small group and belong to a people of God. Or maybe it was last week when we talked about what it means to grow as a follower of Jesus. And you say to yourself, I, I need to learn and be equipped of how to apply the word of God in my life. And maybe your next step is to, is to take that class that we'll be launching in a couple of weeks or, or to join a service team so you can be conformed into the maturity of Christ. Or maybe it has to do with, with multiplying. Maybe you need to change the focus of who you're discipling and how you're discipling, that the goal is multiplication, not simply addition. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus and you don't know who Christ is. You haven't become a Christian. Then your next step is to become a Christian, to understand that Jesus has paid for your sins on the cross. He's removed your guilt. He's removed your shame. He's paid your penalty. And your response is to, is to turn from your sins and put your trust in him and be saved. So I just wanna encourage you, no matter where you are, you have a next step today. And look, something happens when we leave this place and we go to lunch or we go home. Like, like when we wake up on Monday morning and, and we kind of forget what we heard uh, during the sermon. So I wanna encourage you, don't leave this place without responding to what God is pressing on your heart. In fact, we've got a group of people who are wearing these blue shirts that say belong, grow, multiply. They'll be right outside this room and to the left that would love just to engage with you in conversation help uh, identify maybe what your next step is. They'd love just to talk to you about what it means to, to engage in the mission of our church. I encourage you, don't, don't leave this place without having that conversation before you leave today. So we wanna be a church that ignites a passion to follow Jesus and helps other people do the same by belonging and by growing and by multiplying for the glory of God. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much that you have entrusted with us with the most important assignment in this world. God, you've called us to go and make disciples. And Lord, if we're honest, there's a high level of fear, uncertainty, got a lot of unfamiliarity as it relates to, to how to do that. And so God, we need your authority and your presence that's in our life through the Holy Spirit to make that happen. So God, we, we just wanna be faithful to you. God, we wanna love you more 
and we wanna help other people follow you better. So God, would you lead the way and help us to take a step today, I pray in Jesus' name.